I just want to start by saying how thankful I am that we can meet together in person. Um, this is such a gift to be together on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. Uh, praise the Lord for this opportunity. <clears throat> if you have your Bible uh, or your Bible app, or even if you just like to use your worship guide, please open it to Genesis 14 to the passage listed there. We've been in a series, a long series, that's going to take us all the way up to Christmas, going through the life of Abraham, or as he's known still at this point in the story, Abram. And we're going through just one episode at a time, almost like it's a, like a streaming TV series. Just one episode in Abram's life at a time. And today we're in the second half of Genesis 14. We, it's sort of like a part two. It's almost like last week in the first part of Genesis 14 ended as a to-be-continued cliffhanger, and now we see the resolution. So before we read the passage for today, let me just give you a quick, uh, like last time on Abraham's God, the story of Abraham and his God. <laughs> Recap. Uh, so last time we found Abram living in the land that God had brought him to, the land of Canaan. And he was in a part of Canaan called Hebron, where he was kind of camping out, essentially in the backyard of this guy named uh, Mamre. Uh, he's by the oaks of Mamre. And while he's living there peacefully, uh, enjoying God's favor and enjoying the favor of the land, the rest of the known world, the rest of Abram's world, was basically on fire. There was like a world war going on. The kings of the east, uh, led by Ketuleomar uh, of Babylonia, the kings of the east had attacked the kings of the west uh, near Canaan and had defeated them. And then there were, uh, then the kings of the east rebelled and revolted. And then the war raged on. And then the kings of the east enlisted the help of uh, the, the Malachites and the, the Rephaim and the Horites, these, uh, these giant clans, these mysterious, uh, big, scary people. Uh, but the kings of the East still crushed the rebellion. And as they were crushing this rebellion, they, they took over the city of Sodom. They carried its people off. Well, Abram's nephew, <coughs> Lot, who back in Genesis 13 had decided to live near Sodom. At this point, he was living in Sodom. And Sodom was, in the text, described as a very, very wicked city. And here we find Lot, who's supposed to be a good guy, Abram's nephew, living in this very wicked city. And when the kings of the east took the city, they carried Lot off with them. Abram gets word of this while he's living peacefully in Hebron. And he says, oh no, not on my watch. And he brings together a group of 318 men that were trained for war. And he chases down Ketuleomar and company, something like 240 miles. They surprise attack at night. They rescue Lot. They defeat the army. And then uh, basically Abram becomes, uh, he should have become the king of the world. Because the kings, if it's like March Madness, right? Kings of the East beat the kings of the West. Abram defeats the kings of the East. Therefore, Abram should be the king of the East and West, the whole world. Um, he should be. 
but he's not. And he starts to walk home. And he comes in contact with two kings from the area, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And that's the part of the story that we come to today. So if you have your, your Bible or your worship guide or your app, let's read it together. This is uh, Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Ketaleomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, went out to meet Abram, in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abram. And he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom, and then the king of Sodom, said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, uh, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you for this, uh, your word. Thank you that it comes to us uh, this way, in a book, that we can uh, read it and scrutinize it and turn it over and retell it and consider it and even take it home with us. Uh, this is the way you speak. It's accessible to us. But you don't even leave it there. You illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit to show us how all of Scripture is about Jesus, your Son, the Savior. So God, I pray that you would do that right now. I pray that you would open this text up to us. Show us everything you have for us. Show us Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would be changed. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so each week, every week, we ask the same, we read the text and we ask the same question to start out every week. Who is Abraham's God in this passage? And the idea is that we can learn all about Abram, all about Abraham's life. We can even learn to be just like him and still be a complete mess because Abram is not the Savior. Abraham's God is the Savior. So starting out in this text, we look and we say, we ask, who is Abram's God in this text? Who does God show himself to be? Well, this being a part two, kind of got the answer last week, and it's the same answer this week. It's God, who God is in this passage, he gives us a name for himself. He's specifically named and described. He's named as God Most High in verse 18, Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High. And then when he, 
Melchizedek blesses Abram. He says, blessed be Abram by God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Well, we learned last week, God most high, uh, in the Hebrew, it's El Elyon. And looking at the Hebrew helps us understand the meaning. El is short for Elohim. It's like an abbreviated form. Elohim is God's, God's name is the creator God who made the world. That's why it says possessor of heaven and earth. It belongs to him because he made it. Elyon means like the highest, most, the, the ultimate. And it's translated most high. So God most high, El Elyon. The connotation and the meaning of God's name here is that he's the one true God who's above all other gods. His power is unlimited. It's the unlimited power that created the heavens and the earth. In this world where every family and every people group and every nation had their own particular gods, it's significant that here in the midst of the aftermath of a world war in which Abram was victorious, the credit is given to his God, the God Most High. Just as El Elyon is God above all other gods, we see here that his man, Abram, was victorious over his enemies. Last week we saw that in, in the first part of this, Abram's nephew, Lot, was a man in need. He'd been carried off. And Abram was God's man to meet that need. Remember that? Lot was a man in need. He was carried off by Ketoleomar. But Abram was God's man. He belonged to God Most High. He went to rescue Lot. Well, this week, the paradigm shifts a little bit. In this passage, Abram is presented as a man in need. And this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, king of Salem, is presented as God's man who had come to meet Abram's need. Do you see the parallel? Last week, Lot was a man in need. Abram was God's man to meet that need. This week, Abram is a man in need. And Melchizedek is God's man to meet that need. Well, you might ask, Charlie, how is Abram a man in need in this passage? It looks like he just won a world war. How is he a man in need of anything? Well, as we consider this text, and as we weigh it back and forth and think about the context and the meaning, have you ever heard of anyone ever winning a major war and coming home without having gained political power, or having gained land, or expanding their borders? Abram, we learned from the very beginning, was a man that God had called out of Babylon into Canaan, and God had promised him. He promised him three things. Offspring, right? That he would have a child and own a great nation. Land, that God would give Abram the land of Canaan and blessing, that God would bless Abram, and that those who blessed him would be blessed, and that those who cursed him would be cursed. Well, here we see Abram had just gone out and essentially conquered the armies of the world. And he's coming back home, but he's missing something. Do you know what he's missing? Three things. Offspring. 
He went out with 318 men trained for war from his household. Not one of them was his son. He couldn't have kids. And even though he conquered the world, still can't produce an heir. Missing offspring. He's missing land. If you notice, almost every other person in the story is named as the king of somewhere. Except for Abram, named as the Hebrew. And the etymology of the word Hebrew, this is the first time it appears in the Bible. And during this time in the ancient Near East Bronze Age, about 2,000 years before Christ, the word Hebrew, or uh, Aparu, where we get the word Hebrew, meant outsider, foreigner, someone who lives on the edge of society. So Abram comes home, winning a world war, no offspring, no land, and thus far, really no pronounced blessing. He had just conquered the world, and he comes home still without the three things that mattered most. <clears throat> Even at his strongest, Abram was weak and powerless in the areas that really mattered. And as I think about this, I wonder about myself and I wonder about you guys. I wonder if you have ever been in a place where you were like killing it in one area of life. You were your best self. You're just rocking it at work. But at home, you, you weren't doing very well. Or I wonder if maybe with, at home, maybe uh, you're doing great. You know, life is good. Your finances are good. Relationships are good. If you're married or you have kids, all of that was wonderful. But at work, you just can't get it together. You ever had those experiences? Or maybe you have everything you've ever dreamed of. But you can't shake the heavy weight of sadness that seems to haunt you day after day after day. Or kids, have you ever done a really good job honoring your parents or your grown-up, but not doing so well with your friends? Or maybe you're doing great at school, but you keep getting in trouble at home. Folks, no matter how we cut it, on our best day, just like Abram, we are missing so much. And that's what we see here in this passage. He's a man in need. So here he comes, uh, having won the world war with his army behind him, and they're carrying all this treasure, and they walk up to this area called the King's Valley, which we know is just outside what we would call Jerusalem today, and these two guys come out to meet him the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Now the king of Sodom is not named here, but in the last passage we read that he had been defeated, he got, he fell, him and his guys fell into some tar pits, some of their guys deserted and ran away. At this point in the story, the king of Sodom has been identified as the king of a very wicked city, but also someone who lost big time and lost in a very cowardly, dishonorable way falling into a tar pit and running for the hills. So he comes out. And then this guy Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes out. And Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. And king of Salem means king of peace, shalom. Or it means king of Jerusalem. And it has a double meaning. So here comes Abram, out comes two guys. King of Sodom, very wicked, dishonorable, 
It's not a good day for him. And this mysterious person that wasn't involved in the war, as far as we know, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, king of peace. And they both come to Abram, and they both speak. Let's consider what they have to offer. First, the king of Sodom. He comes out, and if you look in the text, he says, verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He had just been totally defeated in the war. He fell into tar pits, his men ran for the hills, and he comes out making this demand. Abram, I know you won this. Um, uh, uh, give me all the persons you rescued, give me all the people you won, but you, you can keep, I'll tell you what, you can keep the goods for yourself. Who does this guy think he is? You know, he's really offering Abram uh, a chance to, he's, he's really asking Abram to submit to him, to be his subject. Because if Abram, this Hebrew, Aparu, foreigner, comes up and he delivers all the people he won to the king of Sodom, but he kept the treasure, then what would have just happened here would be that Abram would have just gotten paid as a mercenary to fight Sodom's war for them. Do you see that? And that would make him subordinate to the king of Sodom. So the king of Sodom comes out, and even though he had been defeated, he retained his city, he retained his land, and apparently he retained his honor. And he comes out and he offers to make Abram a deal. I'll tell you what, you can keep all that you have won. Just give me the people. Kind of reminds me of another story of when two people went up on a mountainside and one of them said to the other, look at all the kingdoms of the world. All of this could be yours if you would just bow down and worship me. Story about Satan tempting Jesus. This is like that. The king of Sodom had no right, but he comes out to make this deal. And I wonder if Abram was tempted by this. The text doesn't tell us. It just tells us his final response, which was, I'm not taking anything because I don't want anyone to think you're the person that made me rich. But we don't know how long he thought about it. You know, I personally think that he was tempted. I think if, that, uh, if our Lord Jesus himself was tempted, as it says in Matthew and Luke, was tempted when the devil tried to offer him the kings of the world, I mean the kingdoms of the world, which the devil had no right to offer, if Jesus felt that temptation, I want to say, you bet Abram felt this temptation. This was his best day and he had nothing to show for it and all he had to do was make a little compromise and he could go home with all the treasures of the world. After all, he didn't have a son and after all, he didn't have a place and after all, God had promised it to him anyway. I think he was tempted by this. What we see here in the text, represented by the king of Sodom, is the temptation to compromise in order to gain that which God has promised. And we see Abram go through something like this. And the temptation to compromise in order to gain that which God has promised, we even saw Jesus go through something like that. And I think about us today the kind of temptation we face to compromise, to gain that which God has promised. It's very real, isn't it? 
You know, we live in a city and we live in a cultural moment when ever increasingly it seems like we're out of public favor being Christians. It sometimes seems like that, doesn't it? The wider culture doesn't approve of what the scriptures teach about sexual ethics or gender identity or what it means to follow God as the follow his man Jesus Christ as the exclusive way to salvation these are things that our culture more and more don't approve of and the temptation for us to try to make deals or show how aware we are or compromise just a little bit with the culture so that we'll be more accepted and maybe more people will come to our church that pressure is real and you know what it's always been real for God's people so that's the king of Sodom. Well, somebody else came out to meet Abram. It was Melchizedek, the king of Salem, king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem. He comes out to meet Abram. And it's interesting that he, quiet, he lets the king of Sodom do his thing. But when it's his turn, he comes up and he does something really special. It says in verse 18 that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. You know, Abram was probably very hungry and thirsty. He had just fought a world war. He came and brought out bread and wine. Well, those have biblical significance, don't they? And it says that he was a priest of God Most High. He's a good guy. And he blesses Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gives him a tenth of everything. A tithe, which is a gesture of submission. So no submission to the king of Sodom. Yes, submission to the king of Salem. It's beautiful. This king of righteousness, king of peace, priest of the most high God. Well, Melchizedek appears a few times in scripture. He comes up in Psalm 110 that we read earlier as an example of the profile for the coming Jewish Messiah. Psalm 110 is a poem about a king who makes war to deliver his people. And that king's going to come, and he's kind of like Melchizedek. That's what Psalm 110 is all about. Points forward to Jesus. In Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, chapters 4 through 7, Melchizedek comes up more than once. And he's described as an example of the kind of priest that the Lord Jesus is today. Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, and Jesus is the great high priest who stands before the Father on his people's behalf. So Melchizedek in Scripture is brought up over and over and over again as an example of a glorious king who delivers his people and of a high priest who stands in for God's people. But then we don't really know anything else about him. He's a mystery. And there's all kinds of stories and legends that go back all the way to like Second Temple Jewish period, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, and all the way up till today with numerous podcasts and websites all trying to answer the question, who is this mysterious Melchizedek? Who is this guy that the Bible says is like Jesus, but who comes out of nowhere? Who is this 
king of righteousness, king of peace, priest of the Most High God in this pagan land that we don't know anything about. Who is he? Well, one extra biblical tradition that you find in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, talks about Melchizedek like he's immortal. Maybe he's an angel because we don't have a record of his birth or his death. And you know what? Maybe. We're already walking around with giants here in Genesis 13 and 14, but we don't know. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. One tradition says he lives forever. Well, maybe, we don't know. Another tradition more recent says Melchizedek eh, probably didn't really exist, uh, but he fits a literary type. He's kind of that like shaman figure in Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. He didn't really exist. He's, it's like Rafiki in Lion King or Tom Bombadil in The Hobbit. He's, he's sort of this outskirts mysterious. Well, I think there's something to that. He does play that shaman-like role. It doesn't mean it didn't exist. So there's great mystery here and lots of great podcast material trying to figure out who is Melchizedek. Well, I had a professor in seminary, Gary Bershears. And some of you may have heard Gary teach. He's been around the city for a long time teaching the Bible. Well, Gary used to do this thing. I like to call him Dr. Bershears, but he likes to be called Gary. So we just went with Gary, which that's fine. So Gary, uh, Gary used to do this thing in class. And I want to show you now. He'd, he'd present a question like this. Who is Melchizedek? And he'd throw out all these. Somebody would be like, uh, I, you know, I read... Uh, something from the Dead Sea Scrolls. I heard a podcast that maybe he's an immortal angelic figure. And Gary would go, hmm, yeah, maybe, but uh, what does the Bible say? And everybody would be like, what? And we just read the... He'd be like, does anybody else have an idea of who Melchizedek is, what the Bible says? Somebody else would be like, uh, yeah, I think that maybe he's uh, kind of like a... He fits a literary type. Uh, like Joseph Campbell, the, the mythology scholar who wrote the thing, The Hero's Journey, and every hero has a shaman figure, sort of like uh, Dumbledore or Rafiki. And Gary Brashears would stand back and he'd go, hmm, yes, but what does the Bible say? And everybody would go, Gary, we're, that's what we're trying to figure out. We're trying to figure out what the Bible says. Uh, and he'd go, no, what does the Bible say? And finally the class would be out of answers and then he would go, turn your eyes to the Bible and tell me what the Bible says. And he was trying to teach us how to get our answers from the text, not from somewhere else. So in this case we look at the text and what does the Bible say? Well, surprise, it says all we need to know about Melchizedek. It says Melchizedek was the king of Salem, the king of peace. He brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of the Most High God. That's who he is. And everything else is mysterious podcast material. What do we need to know about this guy? We need to know that he was a king, and he was a priest, and he blessed. Psalm 110 that mentions Melchizedek as a type for the Messiah gives a profile for kingship. And the kind of kingship we find in Psalm 110 is somebody who represents God to people. Psalm 110 is a story about the coming king who executes judgment. 
Only God has the right to execute judgment. So a king, according to the Bible, is someone who represents God to people. Then in Hebrews 4 through 7, it also mentions Melchizedek, gives a biblical profile for priesthood. And a priest, according to the Bible, is someone who represents people to God. So in the Bible, a king is someone who represents God to people, and a priest is someone who represents people to God. And almost every king or priest in Scripture is one or the other, except for two people, Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus. Melchizedek is a priest and a king, which gives him, this mysterious figure, the right and the ability to mediate both ways God's blessing. And we see him do that here. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high. He's speaking as a king, representing God to the people. Blessed be Abram by God most high. And then he turns and he says, blessed be God most high. And then you can put in brackets, by Abram. Do you see it? He mediates blessing both ways, as a king and then as a priest. As a king, he blesses Abram, speaking for God. And then as a priest, he blesses God, speaking for Abram. He mediates. And then he, and blessing. Blessing's a huge deal. It's one of the three things that God had promised Abram that he doesn't have thus far. So here's the story. Abram shows up on his best day, seriously lacking. He's a man in great need. He's at the end of the greatest, he's already done everything he could do to ever get God's attention. And he comes in without the thing, the three things his heart longed for and that God had promised him, offspring, land, and blessing. And he comes in contact with these two kings. One king offers him a quick way to get rich, to simulate what God desires for him, but it would have involved compromise. And another king walks up and by divine right mediates blessing. Folks, this is a picture of our life before God and the life and ministry of our priest king, Jesus Christ. This little episode in Abram's life is the story of humanity. Even on our best day, we don't have what it takes to please God. Our greatest acts of righteousness are even like filthy rags before him. And even though we can win the world, fight a culture war, grow the biggest churches, have the most money, take America for God, you know, whatever. It's not enough. We need to fall before the great priest king, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, priest of God most high, and receive his blessing. And that priest king is Jesus Christ. I believe that's why Melchizedek brings out bread and wine and why it's in this text inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we would read it and the Holy Spirit was like flashing a light. Who else in scripture is a priest king who brings bread and wine to sustain us and to fill us? It's the Lord Jesus. All right, let's wrap this up with a quick application. This is really important and I wanna share it. 
And actually, we might go a little bit over time. Is everybody okay with that? Can you give me five more minutes? Okay. Our church, this is our first Sunday together, really back in a long time. And we're small, but we want to grow. We just got a new pastor. Praise the Lord. Happy to be here. We have this Sunday space for a while. We're going to look for a more permanent Sunday space. We're in a critical time. And we have dreams of growing in, you know, numbers. Numbers aren't everything, but numbers represent people, and people matter to God. We, we, we want more people to come to our church to hear about Jesus. We want to grow in our ability to do good in this city. It would be easy for us to try to go grow by compromising our values in the areas that the culture doesn't approve. And in fact, it's way easier than we would think because our own heritage, in our own tradition, we've already been compromising for generations. So if we just go around about business as usual, as, um, uh, the, the, as, as, as Presbyterian, Church, Presbyterian Church in America, that's our denomination, doing that here in the city, if we just go about business as usual, we're already compromising. Let me show you. Throughout the 20th century in America, beginning early in the 20th century, hitting kind of a climax in the 50s, and then sort of fizzling out in the 80s and 90s. The major denominations in the United States went through big battles over, the, over theology and the authority of the Bible. In our own tradition, the Presbyterian Church in the U.S. had a major split with conservatives and progressives. And one group of conservatives said, no, the Bible is God's word, it's authoritative. Jesus did rise from the dead. Jesus is God. That's Christian orthodoxy. And, and the progressives said, eh, we're a little bit over the Bible being authoritative. We're not quite sure if Jesus was fully God and rising from the dead is a metaphor. And of course, this was a battle worth fighting for the conservatives. Jesus is God, the Bible is authoritative. So they went out to fight the battle, to win the denomination. And what ended up happening is in 1973, this group of conservatives decided they had fought long and hard in a good fight, and they decided to separate and form what they called a continuing church, Presbyterian Church in America, where we're committed to Christian historic orthodoxy and the authority of scripture, and that's a good thing. But do you know there's a dark side of the story? During the height of this battle in the Presbyterian Church in the U.S., the conservatives fighting for the authority of Scripture and the deity of Christ, they fought for other things. They couldn't garner enough cultural support in the Presbyterian Church U.S. in order to go to war for the Bible. So they added some things to their agenda. The agenda the battle cry of the conservatives that are the forefathers of our denomination were classically summarized by a leader named J.E. Flo in the Southern Presbyterian Journal in 1954. Their platform included five things. An old school interpretation of scripture in the Westminster Standards. That's what I'm taught. Christian orthodoxy. Historic Christian faith. Uh, Presbyterian polity. Well, that's normal. Uh, a grassroots 
uh, grassroots institutional church oversight. I like that. No, you know, hierarchy from on high coming down who doesn't know us. Okay. Uh, the spiritual mission of the church. Yeah, that's great. We're called to preach the gospel. This is about people knowing God. And then the last thing, and I quote, the purity and, and integrity of the white man of North America upon whose shoulders land the burdens of the world. What? The forefathers of this denomination went out to fight for the Bible and fight for orthodoxy. And the battle was too hard. So they looked around and said, you know, we got a lot of people that would ally with us if we just vocalize these other values that we have. Like white supremacy. Folks, that's our family. That's our branch of Abraham, Abraham's family. We've already compromised. So as our church, we want to grow. If we just go out, business as usual, say we're just going to do regular Presbyterian church already compromised. And I tell you all this not to heap shame on our family story, but to point out the shame that's already there. And to say, Hope, Hope Presbyterian, what lies before us is a great mission. And if we go out to do it, shaking hands with the King of Sodom, like we've been doing for generations, we have nothing to offer the world. So the invitation of this story, the invitation of this gospel, the gospel of Christ, like last week's, we need to be challenged to let go of the culture war, to not be afraid of the folks who don't approve, but to find our blessing in the priest king who mediates relationship with God. Do you see it? Let's pray. God most high, Father in heaven, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for your word. Thank you for Abram who had to face the choice of compromise or submission to the priest king because that has been our story as your people since that day, well, even before that day. Lord, I want to pray for our church. Stand before you and ask you, oh Lord, by your mercy, by the delivering power of Jesus, may we be a church that says no to further compromise and says yes to clinging to Jesus the priest king with all that we have because every blessing comes from him. Help us to be strong and courageous like Abram was in this passage. Help us to be strong to say no to temptation and to say yes to Christ. And Lord, I pray that generations from now, this city, our friends, our families would be different because of the blessing of Jesus, the priest king. Not because we did a good job, but because he is your man. It's in his name we pray. Amen.